it really does matter how we live our lives. In fact, it's mattered since the moment you got up this morning, the way you lived your life. Since the moment you rolled out of bed this morning, took a big breath of air and said, today is the day that God has given me. God didn't give you this day right here today. Like he didn't say, I'm going to give you this day so that you can enjoy it for yourself. Like he didn't say, I'm going to allow you to have this day so that you can seek your interests and your desires and do whatever you want for you. The Bible tells us that our days are numbered, that you and I, all of us, every one of us in this room today have a day that will be the last day of our lives. It could be today. It could be on your way home today, you could have a massive heart attack and die. God did not give you this day to seek your interests, your desires, your family's desires. God gave you this day to seek the interests of others. God gave you this day to to point other people to Jesus Christ. He didn't say, well, I'm going to give Jim another day today so he can just enjoy this day and live it out and bring it all to him. No, the only reason that God gave us another day is so that we can take our lives and point other people to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose for your day. We aren't here for ourselves. It's not about us. It's about others. It's about using our lives to point others to Christ. So let me ask you, how much of your time this week was for you? How much time did you spend this week? It's all about me. And you signed off. In fact, how many things do you have scheduled this week? You're already looking at and you're filling for me, 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 for me. God didn't give you this day or any day for you to seek your interests only, for you to seek your desires only. It's there and we are here today for a purpose made in heaven to point others to Christ. Paul's about to show us that in this letter today that he has written to the church at Philippi and he's gonna show us those very things and it's very challenging. Yet, let me ask you a question, just answer that question. What did you do already today with your life to point other people to Jesus Christ? What decisions did you make getting your kids ready this morning, walking into this worship service, driving here? What have you already planned to say, Lord, thank you for these three hours since I've been up. I'm going to use my life to point others to Christ. How many of you paused and asked that question? Well, let's see how we do that. Grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 12 to 18. If you need a Bible, place your hand in the air. Ushers are working their way through the aisles and they'll give you a Bible to follow along with us. Open your mobile device, but turn to Philippians chapter two and we're gonna read verses 12 through 18 today. Philippians chapter two, verses 12 to 18. Stand with me and we'll read it out loud together. Philippians chapter two. This is a letter written from Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are the words that God wanted in the Bible. And this is his words, the Spirit's, prompting using his personality to write these words. Let's read Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18 out loud. Ready, read. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation." Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. You may have a seat. Paul gives us a a reminder, it's a very familiar passage for many of us that, that have been Christians for a long time. He reminds them that he loves them. He reminds them to work out their salvation, or we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does it, why does he say that? What does that mean? It means this. We work out what God initiated in us. We work out what he initiated. God started this thing called salvation. God is the one that drew us. Jesus saves us. The spirit lives in us. So he is saying, work out this salvation that's in you that God initiated. He is the one that did it for us. And so as Paul says this, it's a real tender part of the letter. And, and I'm always amazed because I don't picture Paul as the kind of person that would weep openly or that, 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 that was kind of an affectionate kind of expressive, expressive person with emotion. But you're seeing how God is shaping him, how the spirit is changing him. And he's getting tender as he speaks to these churches. Because if you had met him 15 years prior to this, he was barking out orders to, to execute Christians. And so I doubt very much that he would speak. In fact, look again at verse 12. It says, therefore, my dear friends, and some translations have dearly beloved. In fact, there were probably people who saw this transformation in Paul and say, Paul said, beloved? Dear friends. You can see the shaping and the spirit working in his life. And, and he says, in light of what Jesus did for us, Continue to obey like you already are. Live in such a way, even if I'm with you or I'm not with you. Live in such a way. And then he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Like, how do we, it almost sounds like God is, is this whack-a-mole God. If we don't live in such a way, like a fearful of God, bam, he got me this morning at nine o'clock. He's going to get me this morning. Oh no, Bam. What does that mean to work out your salvation? Remember, he initiated, he, he started it, he's the originator of it, he gave it to us. So how do you work it out? Fear and trembling. This fear is a reverential fear that springs from a deep love and admiration for God or for someone else. And so he says, as you have always obeyed me, and now, whether I'm with you or 800 miles away, like I am right now, incarcerated, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a dread that seeks to avoid anything that would dishonor God. It's this unusual respect for this holy God. And it's this dread, like, I don't want to dishonor you. He says, keep doing that. Keep, keep, keep working it out. And by the way, just some thoughts on the fear of God. The fear of God is the death of every other kind of fear. Think about that for a second. 
The fear of God is the death of every other kind of fear. It's like a mighty lion. It chases all other fears away. Spurgeon said that many years ago, and it's such a good thought. It's the death of all other, the fear of God is the death of all other fears that you might have. And it pushes away all the other fears because God is with us. And it's this, this, this reverence that we have because he lives in us. And, and we're like, only God could do that. And so we have this reverential fear like, wow, that fear of God pushes away all their fears. But he says, work out your salvation. By the way, it's very important when we pause and hit the pause button. Sometimes what is said is as important. And sometimes what isn't said is as important as what is said. He says, work out your salvation. Here's what that doesn't mean. You and I will never be able to earn our salvation. Like he's not saying, keep working so that you earn your salvation. By the way, that's such a pious statement. That is so prideful to even think that a human being could ever do enough. Really, contemplate that with me for a second. To think that somehow that you and I could do enough good an imperfect, sinful person could do enough good that we could ever allow ourselves to stand in the presence of a holy, righteous, sinless God. It's such a pious... When I hear people say, I say, man, that is such a proud statement to think that somehow you believe that by your works that you earn your salvation. Come on, are you kidding me? We have a sin nature. We would never be able... How can you start from sin and get... To perfect. Something has to step in, and his name is Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we earn our salvation. It also doesn't mean that you work out your salvation so that you keep it. That's just as pious, too. I mean, when you really think about it, it's such a proud belief to think that somehow you and I can keep our salvation. Like, we can do enough good, we can keep doing good, and somehow we get to keep our salvation. Here's what I know from John chapter 10. It says this, that no man can pluck us from the hand of a perfect God. Now think about it. When we get saved, God the Father, God the Son, God, Jesus went to the cross and, 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 and was the sacrifice for our sins. The Father, God sent him there. Father said, no one can pluck us from the Father's hands. The Spirit lives in us. How in the world do you, this is so, so prideful that we would ever think that somehow you and I that somehow we could remove ourselves, that we're stronger than the strongest God that will ever live. To think that somehow we can pull our way from an eternal grip of an omnipotent God. Or that somehow that we can do enough to keep it. Listen, God already promised he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Listen, and he won't, amen? He won't. So why do we even grapple with that thought? Like, why do you grapple with something where God's promise is he'll never leave you? Here's another reality. John 3.16 is a verse that many of us are familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, that whoever or whosoever believes in him, trusts in him, listen, will not die, he says, and, 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 shall, and shall not perish. And then, what's it say? And will have eternal, everlasting life. So I always ask the question, what part of eternal and everlasting isn't eternal and everlasting? See, when God promises something, you can bank on it. 
The only thing that you and I offer, and I've said this on many occasions, is our sin. Like, all right, God says, I'll give you salvation. Here, give me your sin, and I'll give it to, Christ will take it to the cross. The only thing we have to offer is our sin. So in no form or fashion are we called to earn our salvation. So this, this doesn't mean that we work out our salvation, that we're working it out so that we get it. No way. God is the initiator. God is the one that saves. God is the one that draws. The spirit seals. He is the one that saves us. But he's saying, now that you have it, work it out in such a way. It means that he did the work to save us. It means that he keeps us secure and no one can ever remove us from being his kids. It means that Jesus was the perfect redeemer and sacrifice. And because of his work on the cross, we have the chance to receive this free gift called salvation. So why does he continue to tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? See, he initiated the work. Let me try to, I'm going to try to give you some word pictures because this is such an incredible truth. Like, this is, this is, if we don't believe this, then it changes all of our theology. Like, we wake up every day and cower in fear, like, oh no, I hope I still have my salvation. Oh no, 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 I hope I can earn it. My wife and I and my family enjoy going up north to the Gaylord area in northern Michigan. We were there last week, and one of the places we like to visit while we're there is Mackinac Allen. And by the way, if you live in northern Indiana and you have never been to Mackinac Allen or taken your kids there, then after the service today, drive up there and go see it, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's that good. And there's this ferry that you take across the water that takes you over to Mackinac Allen. It's like this place all by itself, and it has, this, it has this, this path around the outside that's eight miles long. Like, you can walk it if you want to. You can take a carriage ride around, or you can rent bikes. And one of the things that our family likes to do is, is often is rent bikes and ride around the island. And then if you need some marriage counseling, you and your wife get on a bicycle built for two, and you ride that. You laugh, and I'm serious. Like, you need to work out some things in your marriage, get on a bike made for two sometime. So you go up and you say, I want a bike made for two, and they smile because they know marriage counseling 101, there it is. And so we've been around the island together on many occasions, riding on around, and, and, and on occasions we've, we, when we needed some marriage counseling, we got the bicycle bill for two. But the picture is this. For me, I'm in the front, and I pedal this bike, and my wife happens to be behind me, and she's pedaling. But if you've ever been on a bicycle built for two, the guy in the front has to pedal often first. Like, he gets it gone. He initiates the path. He, he, he lets the direction go, or she moves the bike so that it goes. And then the person behind, the pedal begins to move, and they join in. So there's this initiating pedal that moves, and then if you don't pedal with them, the pedal is moving. So harmony is, and Paul's looking at sure he said, God initiated. Now, now here's the picture. Work together. Now, let me show you what it looks like in the purest form. Here's a picture of Ann and I on a bicycle built for two. You know, we're, in, we're enjoying this, and we're riding downtown in Mackinac Allen, and, and we're pedaling, and it's the way it's supposed to be. I'm pedaling. She's, because the pedal is turning, she's turning with me. One of our trips around Mackinac Island 
it didn't work that way. Like, I was doing all the work, and I didn't even know it. And my kids took this picture of my wife from behind. Check this out. (laughs) It's kind of the picture sometimes for us, isn't it? Like, God started this, and he said, hey, wait a minute. Pedal. Pedal. Let's bring it back to uh, just one bike. If you've ever ridden a bike and you know that the pedals, one is up and one is down. Both pedals aren't up on the sprocket. Like when you pedal, they don't go like this. It would never work. Because one has to be up and then the other foot has to catch it. When this one goes down, this foot brings it up. Here's the picture. God said, I started the salvation. I got the pedal moving. Now listen, he says, do your part. Work it out. Work out this thing that I started. So I've started it on the sprocket of salvation. He says, now work. Now listen, if we don't work it out, guess what happens? We stall. Your bike called sanctification journey isn't moving. It's God saved us. And that's where it stays. And until we work it out, we're not moving forward in this journey called of a sanctification journey. And Paul's looking at this group. He says, hey, work out that salvation. God started to pedal. Hey, start pedaling. Start moving. Let me give you another word picture for some of you. In my hand is is a sheet of paper that has a whole bunch of music notes on it. In fact, our musicians often have these and like it it has a G and a GC and a GD and I have no idea what this means. I just, they're just letters to me. They're, and there's words. Now, on paper, that just is, is music. It's music. It's, there was a composer to this music. The composer wrote these chords, wrote these words. And, and, and he knew it when he wrote it, that this was a song. Like, this is, can be something else. But listen, you've got to work it out. Someone's got to get on a piano and guess what? Someone's got to get on a guitar and strum the chords. And God is saying, listen, I've composed the music. I'm the composer. Now listen, work it out. Play it out. And what do we know? The more we work it out, the more we play it, guess what happens? The better it gets. Paul's looking at this church and said, hey, God has started this work in you and it's beautiful. But listen, in order for it to become what I've created it to become, in order for you to become what, you, what I've created you to become, guess what? You better start pedaling. You better start playing. Because otherwise, it's just going to stay in this form and fashion. Let me give you another word picture to working out your salvation. Say you're not feeling well. And so you wake up with this ailment. Maybe it's in your shoulder and you realize, man, I just can't throw like I was able to before. I can't do push-ups like I want to. And I'm throwing the ball with my, my kids in the backyard. Just, it hurts. And so you go to your doctor. And the doctor looks at it and he diagnoses and he maybe does an MRI and, I don't know, maybe does an X-ray. And he comes back to you and he gives a report. And he says, or she gives, and she says, you know what? you got a messed up labrum. And, and, and here's the prescription. I want you 
to do this therapy, go visit this physical therapist, and I want you to stop by the drugstore on the way home, and I want you to buy this prescription, and I want you to take this prescription, and I want you to do this therapy. It's in order for you to find improvement, in order for health to come, listen, that's the prescription. Here it is. And so the doctor looks and says, in order for you to be healed, in order for you to become what you can be, then listen, you better do the therapy. You better work that out. You better take the medicine. That's the idea. I've given you a prescription. In order for you to be what I want you to be, then you need to do this. You see, God, when he saves us, listen to me, this is important. He gave you and I a new heart. He gave us new gifts. He gave us a new will. He gave us new power. And all these things are new in us. And these things are so new in us. And he's saying, listen, I gave you something. Now, work it out. You're not the person you were before. If your desires don't change, you've got to ask this question. And there's no life change in you or me. Then we have to ask the question, are we truly saved? Because once God invades, he changes our desires. He gives us new talents. He gives us new ability. And Paul's saying, listen, work those out. You now have something you didn't have before. Don't let them lie dormant in your life. Paul is saying as he's looking at this group, since God did all this, therefore, he says, my dear friends, continue to obey. In light of all that Christ just did in Philippians 2 through 5 through 11, went to the cross, was obedient to death, even death on the cross. I want you to live in such a way that you work this incredible gift out daily, not wasting the gift of salvation. We watch it happen and those of you who, are, who enjoy sports like I do, and, and if you've ever coached, and, or maybe you've been a teammate, maybe you've been a baseball coach, football, volleyball, I don't know, soccer, whatever it is. Have you ever said this about someone? Wow, they got great talent. They have incredible talent. Like, they're gifted. Like, it, it's the three-year-old kid, like, four-year-old kid, sometimes you watch, they start dribbling, they're dribbling with two hands, they're like, it took me 13 years to do that. And like, they just pick up a basketball and they dribble, or soccer. They just, they dribble with their feet and they can kick behind. And you watch them just flip it up in the air. You're like, wow, that person is gifted athlete. Or someone that can shoot, you know, they had perfect form and, and they get in that triple threat position. And early on, you watch them in just perfect rotation on the ball. And it's just, they hit shot after shot and think, wow, they are gifted. They are talented. They have something that others don't have. But how often have you and I witnessed this too? You see this gifted and talented person not work hard. You just watch them. They don't work hard. They don't work hard at all. And you walk away and think, man, if he would have worked as hard as this guy who has no talent, imagine what he or she could have become. And Paul's looking at this church and he's saying, hey, you got new gifts? You got new talents? You got new desires? You got new abilities that you never had when Christ saved you. Listen, work them out. Why? So that you can live in such a way that you shine like a star in the sky. Why? So that others look at your life. They ask the question, what do you got? And you say, I got Jesus. But how many of you, 
are wasting your talent? How many of you are wasting these new gifts and abilities and skills? You're not peddling. You're not playing the music. You're not doing the physical therapy and taking the prescription. You're just sitting on your talent. Paul says, please, whether I'm 800 miles away from you or whether I'm with you, please, 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 please continue to obey. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. By the way, God's grace motivates me to live out my faith. I don't live it out to earn his love. There's some people say, oh, you're, you're in that work. No, I'm not. Like, in light of what Christ, it's what he's saying. Therefore, in light of what Jesus just did, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, live, take those talents and work them out in such a way. I love this too, this, this term, work it out. If you would have said this, if you would have walked into a, a Starbucks in the first century and sat down and were in a conversation with someone, and you were drinking your coffee, and in conversation, you begin to say, work it out. They would have looked at you and think, huh, are you a silver miner? Why? Because this phrase in the first century had the idea, when you said work it out, it's the idea of a silver miner going down into a silver mine and recovering and digging out and bringing to surface the silver that's inside of the mine. And Paul is saying, listen to me, Work out your salvation. You have this silver mine of talent. You have this incredible resource inside of you. Listen, dig, get your headlamp on, get your pick, get your ax, get your shovel. Go down and work it out. Bring it out to surface and let it shine like a star in the sky. He's looking at the church and I'm looking at the church today and I'm asking this question. How are you working it out? Are you working it out in such a way not for your interests, but for the interests of others. I thought about this this week at, at High Five Camp. I think about it on a Sunday morning. All the volunteers that are around, happening right now as we sit in here, the children's volunteers and your greeters and your worship teams and your tech teams and, and, and your security teams and your parking crew. I'm watching them, I think, that's working it out. Look at them, they're working out. They're working out that talent, that ability. Why? So that someone else can find Jesus. I walked around the grounds here in the High Five Camp this week, and it was such a beautiful picture watching people who understood soccer. We had culinary arts. Like, I think, man, how many moms know how to cook? And there they were, cooking. How many dads like to cook? And there they were cooking. They were working out this gift in the bill. And I, I walked back here on our, on our field and I saw the, it was a whole bunch of men and, and, and one, one lady. And they, they were teaching these children how to shoot a, a compound bow. And it was like, that's working it out. They got a talent. They're, they're, they're peddling. They're using it. They're just not using it to kill their own deer. Why? So that these kids can connect God to archery. How many of you are working it out? How many of you are just waste pulse it? Don't waste it. You got these new gifts, these new abilities. How are you working it out? Beautiful picture. Then he says this. I like, okay, Paul, that's enough. I, I, I quit. Like, I need, need, need four hours just to chew on that. And so then in his letter, he says this. Look at verse 14. He says this. Do everything without grumbling or what? Arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. How much are we supposed to do? Okay, I need everyone to say that. How much are we supposed to do? 
how much? Okay, how many of us are guilty? Do we do everything without grumbling? Do we do everything without arguing? Some of you don't even like that I said that. Well, you had to bring that up, didn't you? Guilty. Do it without grumbling or arguing. What does argue mean? Let's flesh. When Paul's looking at it, he's saying this letter. He says, listen to me, Church of Philippi. And, and, and Jesus knew many years ago, and the Holy Spirit knew that this, this would be the, the, the inspired word of God. And so as this letter was written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he knew that 2,000 years later, Grace Community Church, this message would come up and say, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Arguing is the person who is always questioning, not asking a question. There's a big difference there. Now, let me flesh this out a second. This is what arguing is. Arguing is a, is a person who is always, ask, is always questioning, not asking a question. A question is, I don't understand how to do this. Would you show me how? There's a big difference between asking a question and being a person who's always questioning. The tone is completely different. Always questioning has a tone of suspicion. And these kind of people are always mistrusting and distrusting of others. These are the people that Paul says, don't be. They're ones with critical spirits. These are the people that ask you a question. If you have a questioning spirit and you answer the question, they give you 50 more questions. Or they ask you the question like this. So you really think that's going to work, don't you? That's a questioning spirit. He says, don't argue. And everything. Think about that for a second. It's not that they have questions. It's that they are sinning through questioning. Their heart is not good. It's a suspicious spirit. It's a mistrusting spirit. I'm looking at this person's life, and you say it in such a way, I don't, I don't, tr- I don't trust, I don't, I don't, I don't. And you ask a question. Here's how it plays out. Have you ever said this? Maybe you've been guilty. Maybe you know people who are, arguing people. It goes like this. How come we always have to do it that way? That's a questioning spirit. A question would be, hey, you know, I'm a little confused here. Can you show me why that's a good way or how that benefits? Do you see the difference? One's questioning, one's asking a question. Or this person pulls someone else aside and after the assignment has been given and they say, (laughs) think we have to do it that way. You agree with me, don't you? Like, that's really dumb. That's a questioning spirit. Or they roll their eyes and say, <laughs> you want me to do that? <laughs> that's a questioning spirit. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's suspicion. That's mistrust. That's not unity. He says, therefore, in light of what Christ has done in his humility, Live in such a way that you don't have a questioning spirit. Just pause and ask yourself this question, just, just personally. Would people see you as a complainer? Negative and cynical? Would they see you as an argumentative, questioning kind of person, suspicious of them, instead of believing the best in them? Would they say, yep, she's that kind of person? Paul's saying, please, please, please. 
in light of all these gifts and talents and abilities that I've, Christ has put in you, listen, live in such a way, work it out, that the world looks at you and says, man, you are different than someone who doesn't know Christ. Grumbling and arguing takes on the idea of murmuring or behind-the-scenes talk. Have you ever had those people? Like after you've been in a circle and there's been this meeting and gathering and afterwards they, they pull you out and behind the scenes, they want to pull you into their thinking. And they say, well, I don't, you don't agree with them, do you? Like, are you kidding me? Can you believe he said that again? That's a questioning. It's behind the scenes slander and gossip. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Stop that. Someone asks Another grumbling spirit, murmuring spirit. You want to know whether you are a grumbler or complainer? Someone asks how your day is, and you say, it's a day. Someone says, how are you doing? I'm here, aren't I? Don't you see me? Have you had people like, whoo? Or, let me, let me touch on something here, because this is important. Or sarcasm. Like, we live in a world that kind of just elevates sarcasm. We laugh. He's really sarcastic. She's really good at that. And, and, and we almost like, we like, we, 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 we laugh when someone is sarcastic. And so we, 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 we really elevate. Listen, that's sin. By the way, sarcasm is a slow boil type of anger. It's just real slow. Like you throw that line out there, you're sarcastic, and it's like a little dig at someone because you're mad. It's a slow boil kind of anger. L- let me just say something to those who, who fall into this trap of sin, of sarcasm. Sarcastic people have a buried anger issue with you or something else. Sarcasm is not a gift of the spirit. It's a gift of the enemy. So, Don't somehow say, yeah, (laughs) and laugh. By the way, God does not laugh at your sarcasm. It grieves him deeply. Every time you and I complain, murmur, are negative, sarcastic, we're saying, if I were God, I would do things differently. And the complainer has forgotten the first rule of the spiritual life. He is God and we are not. By the way, what right do we really have to complain? I mean, just just strip it all down about anything. God chose us to be his kids from the foundation of the world. I mean, seriously, stop. Just hit the pause button for a second. He saved us. He gifted us. He gave us all these incredible talents. He never will leave us nor forsake us. He's our greatest cheerleader. He loves us. He chooses not to remember our sins when we confess them forever. And he says, I am building you a home in heaven that one day when you breathe your last breath, you will spend eternity with me in a sinless way. Seriously, what do we have to complain about? You see, we need an internal perspective. We need to focus on who Christ is and what he has done for us. Grumbling and complaining is an attack on God's sovereignty. Negative people do not shine like stars. Your path is crooked and warped. In fact, look at this again. 
Look at verse 14. It says, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault. And what kind of generation? Warped and what? Crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like what in the sky? What does that mean, by the way? Why, why warped and crooked? By the way, the word crooked in the original in the Greek here is the Greek word scolios. It's where we get the English word scoliosis. And he's saying this, don't live like the world lives in a scoliosis way, crooked and warped. And he's saying this, that, that we should live, doesn't the Bible say walk the straight and narrow? That our lives, when lined up with the crooked world, should look completely different. I'm trying to think through that. I'm a carpenter by trade and built a lot of homes before I even went into ministry, was self-employed and still love working with wood. And so I have an eye for, I was a trim carpenter too, so I have an eye for gaps in your miters and it answers to quit looking, Jim, quit looking. It's hard after all those years. Like that was, that's got putty in it. Look at that. And our saying was as, as trim carpenters, when you see a job done poor, putty and paint make a carpenter what he ain't. And it's just, it just does. So one of the things that we would do when we would build homes is we would take lumber. And in this case, this is a two by four. We built with two by six exterior walls. And when you're building a home, this lumber in itself looks like it's, it's a two by four. 92 and five eighths, pre-cut means you put, a, you put a, a plate on the bottom, two plates on the top, you have an eight foot room. And it, it's just, it's, it's standard. Like it, it looks like it would be a good piece of lumber. But everything that you did as a carpenter, the lumber would be sent to the job site. And one of the jobs of one of the guys at the site, he would actually pick up the wood and he would site it. And so you would make sure as you looked at this wood, you would see if it was warped. You would see if it was crooked. And to be quite frank, most wood is crooked. Most wood is warped in some form. So what you would do, you would look for the bow in the wood. You would look to see if the piece of wood had a bow in it. And so when you would lay out your wall, you would put all the bows up so that when you stood the wall up, all the bows were out so that you didn't have warped inside and warped outside. And when that happens, you walk into home. Well, I walk into home. I can tell you when they haven't done that. Because I can look at a drywalled wall and I can look at chair rail that goes like this. Think someone didn't sight the wood because they didn't put the bows out. The goal is to get as straight a piece of lumber as you can. So when you find a piece of lumber that's warped, it's pretty obvious. And by the way, I went to Menards yesterday and this is, hey, kudos to Menards. Because I thought, I'm going to go find a warped piece of lumber I'm going to go find a boat. I went through almost 50 to 60 pieces of lumber before I found one. Like, in the other time I build something, there it is, there it is, there it is. <laughs> and so Paul is saying, we should walk in such a way that our lives are straight and narrow. And so when you put something that's straight up against something that's warped and crooked, you see the difference. Well, let me show you. Now, together, these two, they look very similar, don't they? Like, look at that. That's it's two by four, 92 and five eighths. Like, I could build my house with that. But when you look closely, you will see that if you take a crooked piece of wood and put it up against the standard, look at the difference. 
And Paul is saying that when we stand up against the world that's warped and crooked, there should be, look at that, there should be a distinct, now this is only in almost eight feet. If you continue on this path, you'll be 800 feet away from the straight and narrow. By the way, a little backstory to this. So I'm taking these two pieces of lumber up to the cash register at Menards yesterday. And I walk up to the cash register. It's really a weird way at Menards. You walk behind the person. That's always weird to me. That's just my thought. Anyhow. So I walk behind this guy and I walk behind and I'm paying for it. And, and he, he says, by the way, I just got to ask the question. Why are you only buying two pieces of two by four? Like, what are you going to do with that? I thought, oh, You're setting me up, aren't you, God? I'm serious. It's like, I'm giving a sermon illustration about the straight and narrow. And what's the straight and narrow do? We share a faith, don't we? And I said, to be quite honest with you, I'm using it for a sermon illustration tomorrow. He looked at me. I said, see this board? (laughs) See this board? And he looked at me and said, one's crooked, one's straight. I said, God has called us to live straight lives. And this is what a straight life is. And this is what a crooked life is. And I said, are you connected to any church anywhere? And went on to find out that his grandfather had died and he had a bad experience with the church. I said, hey, by the way, Ricky, where do you live at? I said, I pastor at Grace Community Church. And he looked at me, he says, your church is here. I live right across the street. It was interesting for me because I knew I was giving this as an illustration and I invited him to Grace and told him about the gospel. But God was saying, okay, (laughs) there's the illustration, Jim, but here's the reality. Listen, church, there's the illustration. Out there's the reality. So Paul is saying, live in such a way that you are different. Why? So that you shine like the stars in the world. Live blameless and pure in front of God so that people look at you and say, what do you have? And you say, let me tell you. So how do we live lives? How do you make a practice of not complaining? Well, I want to give you eight ways here. Practice gratitude in your life. Like when you wake up, speak things you're thankful for every single day. Before you even put your feet on the floor, just say, Lord, I thank you for another day of life. Lord, and if you're married, I thank you for my wife and my husband. I thank you for this bed. I thank you for this air condition. I thank you for this house. I thank you for, I have health. I thank you that I can speak. Like before you, you want to be, you want to, you want to remove yourselves from this propensity to complain. Wake up every day and, 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 and say something that you're thankful for. Another way, praise others. Focus on what people are doing right instead of what they're doing wrong. Like, keep no record of wrongs in your marriage. Some of you go to bed angry at your husbands and your wives and you wake up and you're mad at them because they did something to you yesterday, but they did 34 good things for you. Focus on those. Focus on success in your life. Before you go to bed, write down one thing that was great about your day. And listen. Even if the only thing you come up with, this is incredible, that I'm saved by the grace of God. That's a great day, by the way. Let go, fourthly, of things beyond your control. Stop trying to control everything and everybody. 
You want to be a non-complainer? Just let go. Trust in God. Pray and meditate daily. Stop and ask God to change your, your grumbling attitude and to give you a grateful attitude. By the way, do you think God's not going to honor that request if you say, oh, Lord, help me today have a grateful attitude that then when you open your eyes up, you're going to complain? No, the Spirit lives in you. He will help you. Turn complaints into positive thoughts. Like, we say things like this. Instead of just saying, I don't like driving an hour to work, add, but I'm grateful I have a job. Or, I don't like that I'm out of shape. Don't stop there, but say, but I love feeling so great after working out. You see, that's turning it. Focus on get to instead of have to. I have to go to work tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Say, I get to go to work at 6 a.m. on Monday mornings. Praise the Lord. Turn complaints into solutions. Instead of saying, I'm sick and tired of that coach. I'm sick and tired of that school. I'm sick and tired of this. I'm sick and tired of that person. Instead of saying, you're complaining about it, ask, how can I become a part of that solution? And it might just begin by you having a better attitude about it. Then he says this. Look how he wraps this up. It's powerful. He says this in verse 15. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on that day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice from all, with all of you so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is saying, please keep doing this. Please, look, look, look. He's, he's looking at this group and saying, there's going to be a day that I stand before Jesus Christ. And, and, and he says, I don't want to stand in front of him and think that I wasted my labor. That, that somehow you're still not obeying Christ. Like the best thing a child can do for their parent is to continue to love Christ the rest of their life so that somehow when that parent stands before God, they know that they didn't waste their labor. The greatest gift that a, a child can give their saved parents and the saved kids is to chase after Jesus so that you know that you didn't labor in vain. I think about that often in Grace Community. Lord, it be a day I stand, Lord, I pray think all those people that sat there all those years, 20 years, oh Lord, let me not waste this labor. Lord, let me not labor in vain. I pray God that you, Holy Spirit, would move in their hearts. It would break my heart to know that you sat here 20 years and never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And Paul is looking at this church and saying the same thing. Please chase after Jesus. What's that look like for us? Here's what it looks like. If a rider truck pulled into your home tomorrow, maybe it's two, maybe it's three rider trucks, and unloaded everything you have, all your possessions in your house, all your possessions in your garage, every lawn ornament that you have, everything that you call yours and loaded it up, and you left that community, you moved somewhere else. And if some point during that week, your neighbors in your community didn't miss you, then listen, you're not shining like a star in the sky. 
I think about that for grace. I mean, and we talk about this as a staff regular. I said, what if, what, if, what if rider trucks came in and moved everything that we call grace inside of this building and moved? What if, what if, what if we moved out? What if we went completely somewhere else? If, if, if no one missed the ministry and the people of grace community before Sunday, then we're not living on mission. So we need to be advertising agents for Jesus. What does your infomercial say? And then he gives this phrase. Like, it's not a phrase that you and I speak. Like, it even sounds kind of almost, it's even difficult to say. Again, look at verse 17. He says, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all. In other words, even if I die, he says, I'm rejoicing. By the way, this refers to, 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 to a custom in the Old Testament, which Paul understood. This pouring yourself out. It's the practice of pouring wine on top of an animal sacrifice so that the heat of the fire immediately would vaporize the wine and literally turn it into a beautiful aroma. Paul is saying that, that our lives, should, we should be willing to sacrifice our lives, that when we're with people, that somehow, that even if it's our lives that are taken, that when we put us into the mix, that somehow the aroma, the environment, the neighborhood, the family, the church, the world has an aroma of Jesus Christ because of us. That's a powerful imagery. Let me ask you, when you leave the room, what do people say? Are they glad you left? Or they say, there went Jesus Christ in flesh and blood. You left the aroma of Christ. You see, the world has its stars, but God has his too. And he's saying, hey, work it out. Battle it. Keep working. I started it. Make sure that your life doesn't line up with the crooked generation. You should be different, straight, and live in such a way that you're like a star in the dark sky that people run to because your life is different, because you have a new will, you have new ways, you have a new heart, and you are reflecting Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us today. There's a lot of good stuff here, Lord. There's a lot to chew on. There's a lot to be challenged. There's a lot to be affirmed with. And so, Lord, I pray that we as the body of Christ here at Grace Community would live in such a way that the aroma of Jesus would come out of us, that we're daily pedaling that bike, that pedal that you started Lord, that, that, that we're turning these chords and, and these, these letters and these words from the master composer into something incredible because you started us. We're working out the chords on the music sheet to point people to Jesus. Help us, God. Help us. And need be, God, let us repent of our sarcasm and our, and our complaining spirits and our arguing, questioning, questioning spirit. Oh, Lord, may the world see Christ in us. Please, God, may we be that group of people that looks like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.